This is Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Howard. Good morning. Hey, my name is Tim. I'm lead pastor here at Mosaic, and it's really good to be with you uh, this morning. And um, if you're here in the room, it's great to be with you. If you are uh, on online, if you're watching online, um, and uh, glad you're here. If you're by yourself, if you're uh, on vacation, I had somebody tell me last week that they were on vacation and and took time to actually log in and and be with us like this on on Sunday. So if you're on vacation, welcome. Um, Connor celebrated our Southeast Neighborhood Supper that got together last week, and um, I just want to clarify again, is there anyone from the Southeast Neighborhood Supper that, that is in the room right now? There is, okay, okay, so, so um, if you're shy, you would fit well in the Southeast Neighborhood Supper. There are a few here in the room, which is great, and then there are some who are all camping together. So I don't know if you're logging in or not, but if you are on a campsite somewhere watching, that's awesome, and so good to hear about your Neighborhood Supper. Hey, um, well, uh, just a couple, couple quick things, actually maybe just one quick thing. Um, there is uh, an opportunity at the end of our gathering, if you wanna go on like a very short, uh, and a uh, disturbing tour. What a, I'm a, I'm a great salesman, huh? Uh, here's the disturbing tour. It's going down into our lower level and visiting our, our what we call a kitchen. Um, if you've been in it before, you may not uh, readily identify it as a kitchen, but that is what it is technically, and that's what we've used it for for the last uh, almost 20 years. And we are a week away from starting renovating it uh, because a lot of us have given some extra money in order to be able to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, but it's about a week out from starting that project. So if you wanna see it one last time before it gets started, you've got an opportunity. We don't let uh, just anyone into our lower level during our gathering time because that's where our kids are and we get the chance to lead them and point them to Jesus, but we wanna keep that very safe. And so unless you are a parent or a worker down there that's been background checked and all of that, it's closed to us during the normal gathering time. But at the end of the gathering, when the kids are all done and everything, we can go down and visit the kitchen. So if you wanna take just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest more than say 45 seconds but stop down there and visit it and see and go, oh, this, this is what has been used as a kitchen and we're gonna renovate it and it's gonna look awesome and we're gonna use it and high school students are gonna meet in there during the, the week for, during, come over from Grant and have pizza down there and we're gonna use it on the weekends for different things and it's gonna get so much use in the future. And we've got some great volunteers who love to cook and some have actually gone in there and cooked before. Thank you for your sacrifice but we hope that more people would be willing to do that in the future as it gets so nice and ready to use. So there you go. If you want, 45 seconds afterwards. I, that's the best thing that anyone's ever clapped for for me, so thank you. Um, actually, if you want to clap for something, you can clap for this. My wife and I, Abby, played a new sport um, that has just got invented a few weeks ago, I believe. 
It's called pickleball. Okay, maybe it's more than a few weeks old. But anyways, pickleball, new thing. Um, we, we played against uh, my son, who is technically a scholarship athlete in college, and his girlfriend, who is a scholarship athlete in college. And I want you to come up afterwards and ask me who won. <laughs> we, we did. We did. Two, not just one, but two games. So I don't know that we'll ever play them again because they're training right now to, to play us again. But we won, and I want everyone to know that. So... Okay, hey, uh, we're going to pray, and then uh, we're going to uh, look closely at what Howard just read as we move through the book of Luke together. So let's pray. God, you are present here, and this is, this is your time, and you've invited us into your time, and so we're grateful to be with you. You are holy. You are one of a kind. There is no one else like you, and so we worship you with our attention and with our hearts and with our minds and with our bodies and with our time and you are worthy of all of that. And so you are good and you are powerful and you are just and you are love. Holy Spirit, you alone can speak to and reach every single one of us all at the same time in a way that our minds can't fully comprehend or understand. And so we give you permission and invite you to move and work not just in this time and space, but in our very lives and in our hearts. And Jesus, you alone are fully God and fully man, that you lived on this earth, you came after us and you continued to pursue us, you gave your life, you were dead, buried, you conquered death and rose again, and so we wanna hear your voice above all others. And so would you speak to us now as we read your word and your story. It's in your name that we pray, amen. <clears throat> Uh, my first experience with uh, high school sports uh, was a few weeks before I entered into my ninth grade year in high school. I was 14 years old. My best friend and I decided to play football. Uh, when you get to high school, it becomes tackle football, so it really was an entirely new sport. And so we went out for football. And if you don't know this, or I don't know what they call it now, but when I was in high school and we were entering into high school, it was, the first two weeks of football was called Hell Week. And so we started with Hell Week. We went and got our equipment and all that, and, um, and then we start out. And what Hell Week was was two practices a day for two weeks, uh, about like uh, 8 to 11 in the morning, got a few hours off, came back to 1 to 4. And uh, a lot of that was doing a lot of things that at the time I thought had nothing to do with football. And so it was just running and then running, and then when you were done with that, you would get some water and run some more, and then you would run in circles, you would run forwards and backwards on one leg and skip and do things that we, you know, was really hard for us. And then when we thought we had all that down, and we had to carry each other and do the same kinds of things and then crawl and do this. And then, uh, it, I mean, it, it, it was crazy. We did all of this stuff and just were exhausted and got blisters all over the place and was more sore than I've ever been before in my life. And it was just fantastic, wonderful, and horrible all at the same time. The very last part of that last two weeks, the practice was not one to four, but it was like uh, 6 to 9 p.m. They moved it to the evening later. And they, they told us, our coach said, bring an extra shirt and said, okay, don't know what that's for. It didn't tell us, but bring an extra shirt. So we go through the practice. It's dark at the end of it. And we go to the far end of the field after we're completely done with practice. He says, get your extra shirt and come to the far end of the field. And we take off all the equipment and helmets and that. And he, he has us get in this big giant circle. And he does some speech. And I don't remember the exact words of it, but I'm sure it was very, very inspiring. 
And then he said, okay, take off the shirt that you're wearing. We took off our shirt that we were wearing and we put them in a big pile. And we took out the new shirt that we hadn't worn yet, the extra one that we brought. And we put it down and he said, you know, if you are ready to be a part of this team and go through this season together, you're going to get this shirt. And we put a new shirt down and he stenciled spray, spray painted onto each one of us that said, yes, we're ready to commit. And it said the name of our team and whatever. And we had a shirt now that said the name because he stenciled it on there and this like kind of ceremony thing. And then at the end of it, and this was kind of the best, most fun part, uh, we burned all the other shirts. So we did this little big bonfire thing and just burned all the shirts and then went, and then we went through the season. And we were horrible, but that doesn't matter. What matters is, is we went through this bonding experience that was just horrible and crazy and yet fun and weird and ended up playing. My friend and I played together for four years through high school and it was an absolute blast and mostly survived. I've got a finger that doesn't work totally right and I can't really put my elbow down on a table. It hurts. But other than that, I kind of made it through fine and have wonderful memories and great friendships that came through all that. It was this experience that was this refining revealing experience that said, this is now who you are, and then we're gonna go together through these years, hopefully for sure this season, and hopefully beyond that you commit to it. It was great and memorable. And what happened at that is I learned an exceptional amount about myself. And I learned who were, in that season of life, who were my people, who was I close with. I learned new levels of what I was capable of that I didn't know before. I learned new areas of weaknesses that I didn't know. And I had a clear purpose and role and position and all of that. Jesus does something, although it's much shorter, in what we're going to read today with his disciples. And he takes them through this weird, intense, dangerous experience, and it reveals something about who they are. And it's just a few verses, and you heard it just read. But Jesus takes his disciples through this intense experience to reveal something to that. And so we're going to look at it today and ask some questions that reveals something about ourselves. So look at this, <clears throat> starts in verse 22. Luke chapter eight, verse 22 says this. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. As they sailed, Jesus, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Jesus says, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake. They're, they're Galilee, they get in, in the boat and they go to the other side of the lake. There's probably uh, 10 to 20 of them here in this boat. Jesus goes and falls asleep and then a squall comes. And when, you, when, when I read squall and when I say squall, like most of us, we just kind of like nod and smile, go along like you know what a squall is. Like, come on, who really knows what a squall is? Don't worry about it. I asked Siri and I want to tell you what she told me. A squall is a sharp, and brief, strong wind that stirs up. And it, it's different than a gust. Maybe you heard squall and you thought, oh, like a gust. No, it's entirely different than a gust. A gust is like a few seconds of a wind. A squall is like a few minutes. This is really important. A squall lasts a few minutes. A gust is just really short. And so what happens is this squall came up, which is this really intense wind. Now, what's going on here is that Galilee is lower than sea level by about 700 feet, just significantly lower. And then it's got these mountains on the side. And so cold wind would come and it would come over the mountains and it would come down. And then the, the kind of the warm water, I mean, warm air that's above the water would meet with that. And what would happen was intense wind would stir up all of a sudden a squall that would last a few minutes. So I don't know if you've ever experienced a squall before or if you've had any experience sailing at all, if you've been on a boat, but all of a sudden, 
these guys who were not just average guys on a lake. These were fishermen, professional fishermen, who all of a sudden were in fear for their life. So it was an intense wind, and the water was coming into the boat. Now, the question I always ask myself is, how does Jesus fall asleep in the midst of that? I have no idea. But these experienced fishermen get to the point where they are scared for their life. They're in danger. This is, enough water is coming on. It's lasting enough minutes that they think this is uncomfortable danger. And we're in fear for our lives. And so we get what happens next. Verse 24, the disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. We're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. If this is the first time that you're hearing this story, this is, it's like, it, it kind of shatters our categories. Uh, in fact, our, our minds want to immediately put it into, that didn't really happen, into that category. And so I, I wanna invite you for a moment to, to consider, to be open to the idea that, that this is, this is what happened, that, that Jesus was sleeping. And I don't, I don't know, there's nowhere in the text for this, so this is just in my own mind, but I always picture this story as Jesus not really sleeping, but laying there, and he's kind of opening one eye every once in a while and going, how are they doing, how are they doing? Oh, here they're gonna, they're gonna come wake me up. Okay, I gotta close both eyes. And they wake him up, and he wakes up and looks at him in control the entire time. But then they said, we're going to drown. So again, Experienced fishermen think they're going to die. This is not just a, a, you know, a gust. This is a squall that water, enough water has come into the boat and the waves are high enough and they're unsettled enough that they wake him up and say, we've assessed the situation and we're done. We're going to die. And so Jesus says, I got this one. And he stands up and he rebukes, he speaks to nature. He speaks to nature and it obeys him. And then it's calm. It gets calm. It stops. So the waves stop, the wind stops, everything stops. Two questions. Two questions for us come out of the next verse. Jesus then speaks to his disciples. He's already spoken to nature, the wind and the waves. He turns to his disciples and says, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another. So Jesus asks them a question and then they ask one another a question. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. A few verses, short story, pretty clear what happens. They're fearful for their life. Jesus stands up in the boat, commands it. Nature obeys him. And then he turns to them and says, where is your faith? And then they ask one another, who is this? This experience that they go through that's dangerous, that's unsettling, that's revealing, culminates with two questions in front of us. Where is your faith and who is this? Where is your faith and who is this? So let's ask these two questions of ourselves together right now. Jesus asked them one, they asked themselves one another. Let's, let's take it right out of the story and just ask these questions of ourselves. The first one, where is your faith? Now, as, as, I, as I ask that, it's easy to, to opt out because you think like, okay, that's that's huge. What do I, I don't even know what to do with that question. Where is your faith? That's a massive question. Where is your faith? So let's, let's, let's try to break it down a, a little bit. First of all, just so we're clear of when we, when we say, what is your faith? When Jesus says, what is your faith? As we talk about this right now together, let's just define faith really. So just a, a basic dictionary de definition of faith is confidence, complete confidence or trust in someone 
or something, right? That's, that's what faith, when we have confidence or trust in someone or something. So you have faith in, hopefully, and in a healthy context, you have faith in your spouse, that you have confidence and trust in, in your spouse or a good friend. Or when you have faith, when you have confidence and trust in a supervisor, you have faith in a supervisor and that's good. When there's a lack of that, it's not a good situation, right? So that's someone, something. If you, uh, there, there's a, uh, this is maybe a way to, to just kind of categorize people in the world. Two categories. One kind of category of people in this world is those that have gotten into their car on a consistent, regular basis throughout the course of their life and it has started for them. That's one category. Another category of people is that consistently over the course of their life as they've gotten into their car, it has not started or a battery has died or there's something is broken and there's something is wrong. Those are just kind of two categories. I'm in the second. I do not have a lot of faith that when I get into particularly one of my cars, that it will start. In fact, that has been a consistent moment of prayer for me. When I put the key in and turn it, it's a 20-year-old car. There have been plenty of times that it has not started. I don't have faith in that thing that it will start, even after putting a new battery in it that costs entirely too much. So, faith. Confidence or trust in someone or something. The Bible describes faith as this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We know this, that faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Something about assurance there is it actually has this idea of evidence or proof. And so the Bible tells us that faith is not just blind faith, but it's faith in something or someone that we've thought about, experienced, pushed on, tried out, and found to be proven good, and so we've put our faith in it. And so when Hebrews is talking about faith, it's talking about putting our faith in Jesus, and that Jesus has revealed himself to be someone that we can trust or have confidence in. So that's, that's what faith is. Now, when we ask ourselves the question, or as you're invited to right now, to ask the self-assessing question of where is your faith, here's some three categories to think about so it's not so just broad and open-ended. Where is your faith when it comes to your heart? There's, there's just one category to think about. We'll talk about that in a moment. Where is your faith when it comes to your heart? The kind of the, the core identity of who you are, the very, the very core center of who you are, where your identity lies, where your desires generate from, the thing that Jesus is most concerned about. Jesus is not most concerned about your behavior, your appearance, your resume, or what other people think about you. Jesus is most and first concerned about your heart, the inner core of who we really are. So where's your faith when it comes to your own heart? Where's your faith when it comes to your purpose? Where do you find meaning in life? Why are you here? Why do you exist? Where is your faith in relation to your purpose? And here's a third category for us to think about. Where is your faith when it comes to belonging, to relationships, to friendship, to family? Where, where is your faith when it comes to that part of your existence, your life, your reality? Now, I didn't just pick those three categories from random. I picked those three categories because those are the three things that Jesus has just got done talking about when he leads his disciples into this harrowing, dangerous experience on the boat. He's just got done talking about their heart, their purpose, and where they belong, who their people are. If you were here last week, we just talked through this because this is what Jesus just talked about earlier in chapter eight. 
And when Jesus talked about heart, he talked about the soil of our heart. He uses this imagery of soil. And so that's what we talked about last week. And, and when it comes to asking the question of where is your faith when it comes to, to your heart, Jesus is talking about how soft is your heart to receive from him, to receive direction from him, to receive from, from his word. And he, he actually kind of uses different pictures of what that could be like. Maybe it's, it's kind of hard, like uh, soil that's been trampled down in it and the seed can't get into it. And he uses that to say, it's like when we hear truth and there's something in us that, that wants to believe that and yet somehow the devil just takes it away and just acknowledges there's, there's this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. And that we want to deny that or minimize that or pretend that's not true. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's just a reality of our world. And so sometimes our faith is it's to the point where our hearts are hard and it just bounces off and we can't even let it in. And then he goes in the next one, he describes this picture of like a, uh, the, the seed gets into the soil, but when it starts to lay down roots, it doesn't happen because there's no moisture there and it's not conducive to it. And so it just dies and shrivels up and is gone. And then the third one he describes is, and he, he says that's it's like temptation, that when we hit a test in our life, when we find some kind of test or temptation that it, that it fails because the roots aren't there. Because when it comes to our faith of receiving God's word and then following through with that, we're just not there. We're not strong enough for it. That's not part of our habit or how we live yet. And the third one he describes is that, that the seed gets in, that our faith begins to grow. We receive from God's word and then begin to live things out. But, but then as it tries to grow up and become strong, that the thorns strangle it and kill it. And in the moments of our lives of that, that's when we get distracted by things of the world. And we talked through last week with those are like worry and anxiety and riches and pleasures of this world. And they distract us from letting roots of God's word grow deep in our hearts so that our faith can grow up and become strong and mature. And the final one, the fourth one, as he describes the soil of our hearts as, as good and noble. And he says, when our hearts are, are soft and receptive and then we actually follow through and obey what God's telling us to do. It's, it's like a seed that can sink down roots and, roots and then grow up strong and mature and produce fruit. And he says, that's, that's what I want for you. And so when we ask the question of where is your faith, one way to assess that, to evaluate that, is to say, where's, where's your heart right now? And maybe no one else knows. The inner part of you, the core of who you are, what would you describe yourself as this hour, or this day, or this season, is it kind of hard soil? Is it soil that's not really ready to grow anything? Is it soil that's ready to grow anything that comes into it and so we're distracted? Or is it soil that's been, been receptive to God's word and, and living it out, obeying it? And so we're producing the kind of fruit that God wants to see. And so others can actually look at our life and say, I can attest to, I can testify to the faith that you have is deep and growing. The second category Jesus moves on to is this talks about purpose. Where is your faith when it comes to your purpose? Are you able to connect you existing, who you are, with all your beauty and all of your brokenness and all of your uniqueness and who you are to what God is doing in the world? That your purpose, I heard a story, um, somebody, a young woman in our church recently um, kind of first time out, out of college and grad school and into her career, and it's not, it's not what she thought it would be. We put in years and take out loans and do a lot of work and pass tests and exams and projects, and then we get out into the workforce, and it's, 
It's not what we envisioned. And so for years working into it and now finding yourself in a career for the first time, and it's just kind of disappointing. It's just kind of hollow. And so struggling through that and saying, I don't, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm seeking to follow Jesus. I've done all this work. I've got the job I thought would bring me a lot of fulfillment, and I'm just not being fulfilled. I don't have a sense of meaning and purpose in my life related to my vocation. And somebody invited her to look for opportunities around her, and she realized that she had spent a, a number of hours at work over the last couple of weeks talking to a coworker who was struggling with a severe illness that was going to involve a hospital stay and an operation. And she decided that she was going to risk a little bit and ask her coworker if it was okay if she prayed for her. And that's a big risk, as we know. We're going to step out and go, oh, we've been talking and we're friendly and we enjoy one another's company. We've got some level of trust, but I'm going to, I'm going to take this big leap and say, can I, can I pray for you? I don't know what you think of prayer. I don't know if, you've, if, that's, if we're done, if we're not going to be friends anymore, or if this is going to be a bonding thing and we're going to get closer. Just you risk and say, can I pray for you? And her coworker's face lit up. And she smiled and she said, yeah, and began to list through the specific things that she would like to be prayed for. And so she went away and she prayed for her. And that relationship is, is deepening and growing because she's able to support and care for her. And she says, I, I don't know about my specific responsibilities as they look on my role description, on my job description, but I can see purpose for me now in my time there and why God would have me here. And Jesus has just talked about that as a light or a lamp. He said, there's purpose, that because I am with you, wherever you go, you are intended to be a light for me. And so you might not find purpose or meaning in the exact stage of life that you're in or the role that you have or the relationships that you have, but where is your faith in being willing to assess that God wants to do something in and through you exactly where you are right now? The third category that Jesus just talked about is, is belonging. And he said, where is your faith when it comes to your relationships? Where is your faith when it comes to the people around you? Where is your faith when you, when you think about who your people are, when you say, these are my people, these are my friends, these are the ones that I'm in total, regular, consistent contact with. These are the people that I enjoy. These are the people that, that I fight with, but then we're able to restore and, and get back and it deepens our friendship. It doesn't end it and send it in different directions. Who are those around me? And Jesus lived in a time when it was determined for you, when you were born, who that was. And it was your father and your mother and your sister and your brother. It was your family. Imagine first century Israel and the culture of, uh, of the, the Jewish community, the Israelite community at that time and, and how they identified themselves. And for some of us, that works really well. But for many of us, that's not true. That we go through life and we seek out our family. And sometimes it's solid and healthy and good, and other times we're wondering when it's gonna get back to that place and when God is gonna bring somebody into our lives that we can have as a trusted friend. Where is your faith? Jesus is asking them at this time, where is your faith when it comes to those that you're around? And what Jesus is doing is he's building this community, this family of disciples. That's not just the 12 disciples that we think about. There probably was close to 120 people around them that were relationally connected. And he has just got done talking in a house when his literal mother and brothers are outside trying to get in and say, hey, Jesus, we got to take you home. It's time to go. And he said, he said to those in the house that can hear him that are saying, hey, culturally, you need to go outside right now. Your mom's calling you. And Jesus says, no, my mothers and brothers are those 
who are with me in faith, who are listening to my words and living it out that are obeying them. And so who are the people in your life that God has provided for you, that you're linked arms in that way, that you're joined together, you're unified in a way of saying together, we're seeking to hear God's voice and move together when he speaks, that together we wanna support one another to listen to him, to take time in our lives where we actually say, God, speak to us. And then we're gonna encourage and hold accountable. And as scripture says, spur one another onto faith and good works, that let's do what God is calling us to do together. When Jesus says, where is your faith? Those are three categories that are helpful for us to think through in terms of our heart, our purpose, our meaning, our vocation in life, our, and third, our family, our belonging, who are our people around us? But then the disciples ask a second question. They said this, who is this? Now, the first question is not very worthwhile. It's not really valuable if we don't have the second one connected to it. When we ask the question of where is our faith at any particular moment, if we don't have clarity on who Jesus is, that question of faith gets really squirrely and we can define it however we want and we can change the definition right after we set the definition and we can shift it from day to day and it ends up becoming rather meaningless if we're not clear on who Jesus is. And so when his disciples hear the question of where their faith is, they then turn to each other and say, we need to be really clear on who we're answering that to. Because Jesus is asking us that question, can we answer who Jesus is? And in this moment, Jesus is revealing himself in three quick ways. And I wanna read some verses from, from Colossians because they capture so clearly these three ways. The first one is creator. That Jesus has just revealed himself as creator. See, he's, he's commanded nature because he's created all of it. Colossians chapter one, uh, verses 16 and 17 say this, for in him, and this is talking about Jesus, listen to these words, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, all of it, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds together all things. He sustains all things. And so he's on the boat sleeping, and this storm, this squall kicks up. And he's able to stand up and command it because he was there at the beginning, because he's eternal, he's always existed. And he created everything, and so he can command everything. And so Jesus understands the science between cold air meeting with warm air coming off of a lake and what's going on, and he knows exactly how to speak to it and how to change it so that it can be returned to peace and calm. Jesus has control of that because he is creator, and these disciples just realized, yes, he is creator. And then it goes on and it says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Again, this is Colossians, Paul's writing later, and so that the church now exists, but when that moment happens on the lake, the church doesn't yet exist. But Jesus is demonstrating, not just that he's the head of the church, that will come later, but what he's demonstrating is that he is supreme overall. Another word for that would be king, that Jesus is king. And kings, if nothing else, have authority and power to function as a king. And when they lose either the authority or the power, they cease to be a king. And so when we're answering the question of who is Jesus, one of the key dividing points, one of the key 
defining points of answering that. Is, is Jesus king of my life? Meaning, does he have authority in my life? And one of the ways that we can assess if he has authority in my life is am I following his voice and what he says? A word that we like to shy away from is obedience. But when Jesus directs us to something, do we obey? That determines is he king of our life or not? And the third one is this. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Who is this? When you're answering that question, and we all have to answer it. Here's, here's the thing. If your brain is at any sense on right now, and if your ears are functioning, you can hear the question, who is Jesus? And therefore, sorry to put you in this place, you have to have an answer to it. Your answer may be, I don't care. Your answer might be, I don't know. Your answer might be, he is creator and king. And third, he is savior. But we have to answer that question. And when we answer it with that answer, creator, king, and final savior, we know that he knows exactly what is going on in our life. He has something to say about it as king. And he has done something. He has put his life on the line because he cares for us. If you were like me, if I put myself on that boat, when I'm waking up Jesus, I am actually on the edge of anger because I'm wondering, does he really care? I am an experienced professional, accomplished fisherman. I have not been fearful on this lake before, but I'm fearful for the first time. And I'm wondering, does Jesus actually care? Because he just snoozed. And my life is in danger, and does he care? And Jesus stands up and declares himself, not only am I the creator of everything you see and everything you feel threatened by, but I can control it. I am king. I have the power and authority to do that and to direct your very life. And I care enough to put my very life on the line. I've sacrificed myself for you because I love you and I care about you. May we be willing on a regular basis to ask the question of where is my faith? And who is it that I'm putting my faith in? And one of the reasons that we come into this place and we stand and we sing and we declare that God is good and that Jesus loves us and that we go to this table and tell ourselves this story again and again that Jesus put his life on the line to sacrifice for me, to pay the debt that I could not pay. And so we practice these things and we live in this rhythm to help remind ourselves as we ask these questions of where am I faith and who is Jesus. And so I invite you to the table now. There's tables on each side down here to come and to, to pick up a little cup of juice that represents Christ's body, Christ's blood shed for us, and then to, to pick up a little cracker that represents his body broken. That we would take these things as a regular reminder that not only did Jesus create everything and create me, not only does Jesus have something to say about how we live and exist in this world, but that he also loves and cares for us deeply, that he is our savior. And so Jesus, as we come to you now, we come to you from a lot of different places. Some of us genuinely do not know what we think of you and that we are wrestling through these answers that are available to us, that you are creator, that you are king, that you are savior. Some of us come and we have determined those a long time ago and we have placed our faith in you and you have shaped our lives and provided for us. And we ask you to continue to do that. And Jesus, we know that you invite each and every one of us to come to you and to claim you as Savior, to confess, to experience forgiveness, to be restored and reconciled to you, and to move forward with the purpose and calling that you've put into our life. 
And so Jesus, now we come to your table and we sing to you, remembering your sacrifice and claiming your grace and your forgiveness in our lives.